Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. It's Windrush Day, the 75th anniversary of the arrival of the Empire Windrush, a ship which reached the London docks in the summer of 1948. Interestingly, the Empire Windrush had in fact been operated by a German shipping line in the 1930s and was a German naval troop ship during the Second World War. It was taken by a prize of war. Anyway, on this occasion, it was doing a very different job. It was bringing a group of people from the West Indies to work and live here in the UK. It wasn't the first group of West Indians to arrive, but it's come to represent the migration of people from the West Indies to Britain. And in the 75 years since, that generation and their descendants have made a massive contribution to British life. To find out all about the Windrush, what it's about, what it means, I'm talking to Dr Juanita Cox. She's a research fellow on nationality, identity and belonging at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies. She's also working on a very cool oral history project called the Windrush Scandal in a transnational and Commonwealth context. You're going to be hearing the voices of people that she has recorded and interviewed as part of this oral history project because in more recent years there has been a Windrush Scandal when members of that generation were asked by the British government to show things like evidence of their British citizenship, of their right to be in the country, and some were asked to head, quote-unquote, home to the West Indies. It's a scandal for which senior British government ministers, the Prime Minister themselves, have apologised for profusely. And I get a chance to ask why it's important that we remember this history. Enjoy. Atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. God save the king. No black-white unity till there is first some black unity. Never to go to war with one another again. And liftoff, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Juanita, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dan, for having me. Let's talk about the West Indies, let's talk about the Caribbean in the mid-20th century, 1940, 1950. Islands still under direct British rule? Yeah, very much so. In fact, the first of the islands doesn't become independent until 1962, and the last becomes independent in 1983. So these are British colonial administrations running societies predominantly of black Afro-Caribbean people? Yeah, I mean, I think, Dan, it's probably useful if we go right to the beginning of the story. And I guess the first thing I want to say is that it's important to be aware that Africans have actually been in Britain in varying numbers since the third century AD. But you have to remember also that the British Empire begins with overseas possessions and trading posts from around the late 16th century. And that between 1640 and 1807, 
Britain and Portugal became responsible for 70% of all Africans transported to the Americas. So you've got the 13 British colonies in North America, which are kind of established in 1607 or thereabouts. And then you've got the colonies that are being contested over in the Caribbean um, between various European powers. Those colonies seen as more valuable than the American colonies because they were engines of sugar production, tobacco. Astonishing wealth was made on the back of those enslaved people. Yeah, absolutely. And although you have the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, slavery continues until around 1838. Most people sort of assume, well, that was the end of it. Huge amounts of money had been extracted from the Caribbean and been invested in Britain to build the structures that we see around us today and also to fire the industrial revolution. But importantly, it then sees the continuation with indentureship. So you have Africans in the Caribbean, but you also then had people who were being indentured and brought from places like the subcontinent of India, Portuguese, Chinese, people from all over the place. So actually, the Caribbean, yes, it's predominantly African, but actually there's lots of other ethnicities that go into the mix as a result of indentureship. And then when indentureship comes to an end in sort of 1917, you then have the continuation of colonialism and the continuation of the extraction of wealth from the Caribbean. And it's not reinvested in the Caribbean, it's invested in Britain. And by the mid-20th century, these people who are living in the West Indies had been encouraged to think of themselves as imperial subjects. Many of them had served in the, the world wars, serving king and empire. How do you describe the identity, the kind of how these people would have felt about themselves? It's really difficult to emphasize just how British they felt. Everything they learnt in schools was British. The whole point of the colony was to make people believe that they were British so that they would swear allegiance to the king or the queen, whoever was in power at the time. And I think it's really useful if we listen to a clip from a lady, um, her name's Joyce Trotman, and she's now in her 90s. She sort of explains, and I think when you hear what she says, you can really hear in her voice just how British she felt. From class, in our reading books, there was a picture of the, of the Union Jack with the red, and, and we used to chant, red, white, and blue. These are the colors of your flag. Red says be brave, white says be pure, blue says be true. That was in school, what, 1934, 1935? We were British, British, the operation word is British. Well, that was the voice of Joyce Trotman. And so presumably lots of people like Joyce. Well, they, many people had been to the home islands, Britain, uh, during the war. And why do we see the movement of people from the West Indies to Britain in the years, the decades following the war? What starts that? The people that are born in the Caribbean are British. Anybody who was born within a British territory or born in the UK, had exactly the same status. They were citizens of the UK and colonies, and that was the title that was given to them specifically under the 1948 Act. But we also see that under the British Nationality and Status of Aliens Act in 1914, again, British subjects were any person born in the UK or its colonies. So apart from the education system, they're also legally British subjects. And so what happens is because people have been involved in the First World War and then also in the Second World War, 
When they're demobbed and they return to the Caribbean, what they arrive to is high unemployment. There aren't any jobs for the people who are there. And the reality is the British knew this anyway. I mean, there'd been riots and industrial strikes in the 1930s, particularly between 1934 and 1938. And in fact, there'd been something that was called the Moyne Commission, which had been sent to the Caribbean to investigate what was going on there. And they realised that, you know, actually people were living in really awful conditions and that there was very little employment. The report itself wasn't even published until 1945. And of course, the conditions hadn't changed. So many of those people who had been demobbed realised, well, actually, Britain needs to rebuild. There are many jobs now. There's not enough labour. We may as well go back to Britain. We are, after all, bitter subjects. So let's just play our role in rebuilding the country. So that's primarily the main reason why there's a sort of wave of immigration that starts. I shouldn't even call it immigration, to be honest. It's migration. In fact, I think it's really useful to recall there's a quote, somebody, I think his name was Walter Lothan, he was a carpenter, who came to Britain from Jamaica in 1954. And he says, you know, I was British and going to the mother country was like going from one parish to another. As a Caribbean person, you had no concept of it being any different. And in Britain, there was a welfare state, um, there was an enormous expansion of government-provided healthcare, there was a huge building project, council houses being built, there was infrastructure build going on. And so there were jobs here in Britain, were there? I mean, it, there was a pull factor. This wasn't just an arbitrary decision to suddenly you know, migrate in quite large numbers to somewhere else. No, 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 no. There was definitely a pull factor. Obviously, the NHS is established in 1948. And coincidentally, you also see that there's a huge drive for nurses. So the NHS becomes heavily staffed with people from the Caribbean, particularly working in the areas that a lot of indigenous Brits, if that's what we term them, didn't want to do. So they worked in, in the area of mental health. They did the sort of jobs, emptying bedpans, that sort of thing that people didn't want to do. And even though they had the same qualifications as their counterparts, quite often they were put into these sorts of positions that were undesirable. But yes, I mean, transportation, you know, we had the railways and the buses. There was actually a recruitment drive inviting people from Barbados and other territories. Same thing with the nurse. Members of the NHS were doing recruitment drives within the Caribbean. Many also became restaurant workers. There was a drive for postal workers. So yes, there was a lot of work to be done here. That doesn't mean when they arrived, they were warmly welcomed because they weren't. But this is the strange sort of contradiction of British life because, you know, people are invited, but at the same time, racism just meant that people didn't actually want to work with them. So talk to me about the Windrush, which is a ship that's become synonymous with that generation's journeys across the Atlantic. Why do we remember that one? And, and who was on it? Yes, I mean, it's an interesting question. Why do we remember that one? I mean, obviously, ships have been going backwards and forwards from the Caribbean to Britain long before the Empire Windrush. I mean, in fact, there was a ship that arrived in Britain in 1947 that had 200 ex-service personnel returning to the UK from the Caribbean, and that was on the um, steamship Al-Manzora. But we remember this ship uh, for a variety of reasons. Just to explain, the passengers... There was 1,027 passengers on board the ship with at least, I guess, two stowaways. 802 of the passengers gave the Caribbean as their last place of residence. There were women on board that ship. There were around 80 children on board that ship. 
So it brought back a range of people, including people Polish, actually. I mean, a lot of people, the focus has always been on the black passengers that arrived on that ship. But actually, there were people who were returning from Mexico. There were people from all sorts of different parts of the world. But the reason why it drew attention or has remained in the sort of our historical consciousness is because the media were attracted to the ship and they were present and they took photographs and and we've got lots of recordings of the ship's arrival, which didn't happen with the other ships. And I should explain that as the ship was coming to the UK, Clement Attlee, who was the leader of the Labour Party at the time, had been concerned about the numbers on board the ship and had actually thought, well, should we divert this ship to Africa and let them go and pick peanuts there since they're coming here to earn money? But then thought, well, hang on a minute, we've got the Commonwealth, the optics are going to look bad. So no, let's just let them arrive. So there's a lot of hypocrisy going on where Caribbean people are assuming they're going to be welcomed. The government in the back Background doesn't actually want them necessarily to be here, but then doesn't know how to handle it. Well, you say the government doesn't want them, but the government agencies are partly the people recruiting them, right? It's a story of slightly anarchic sort of policy making. It's absolutely bonkers, contradictory, sometimes very difficult to understand because. You know, on the one hand, they needed the neighbour. On the one hand, they were actively recruiting. But on the other, they were concerned about what the impact was going to be in Britain of having large numbers of black people. So it was always about managing the numbers. You could recruit the numbers, but you didn't want too many. You know, obviously you hear the narrative all the time about keeping Britain white. And that was the main thing because there were lots of fears at the time about miscegenation. And by that, I mean, you know, the mixing of the races. And there was a concern that Britain wouldn't remain white if too many people of colour came in. What happened to those people of colour when they arrived? Did they find the jobs they'd been looking for and the housing? Many of them had a really horrific experience on arrival and some couldn't find housing. I mean, I know of people who had served in the war who ended up having to sleep on the underground at night time, go round and round on the circle line, catch some sleep then and then try and start the process of looking for work all over again. It was very difficult for them, but it has to be remembered that in order to return on the ship on the Empire Windrush, they'd had to pay the fare, which was £28 at the time, which is a huge amount of money. And you couldn't then just go back if you got fed up because people didn't have the money to do so. So they had to make a go of it. And Caribbean people are always very resourceful and they had various schemes they had what they called the partner scheme, where they'd pull their money together in order to buy properties simply because they couldn't rent property. And in a sense, they used that to their advantage because a lot of Caribbean people ended up with homes. Obviously, Caribbean people at the time went on to transform British culture in many other ways, whether it was their contributions to music, whether some became artists. I mean, we tend to think of people in in these silos of the NHS transportation and all that sort of thing. But actually, there were loads of amazingly talented writers. You had people like uh, V.S. Naipaul, who was from Trinidad, John Agard, who's now on the UK curriculum, who was a poet. And then there's the obvious kind of contributions in terms of ska, reggae, drum and bass, you know, dancehall, music, all that kind of thing. So 
People got involved in a diverse range of jobs. And as part of the project, one of the things that's really fascinated me is when I was working on this oral history project and looking at the people that had got caught up in the sort of long history of the Windrush scandal, I found that people had actually contributed in extraordinary ways. So, for example, there's one of the um, recordings was of a person called George who had served as a police officer back in British Guyana. But when he came to the UK, he was given a sort of military scholarship and he ended up joining the Royal Army Medical Corps. He then ended up giving service in Malaya between the end of 1959 and 1961. And I just think it's worth mentioning because we always think, oh, they served in the First and Second World War. But there's other sort of conflicts going on that Caribbean people have contributed, uh, have served in as well. and. He then completed his medical training, went on to work at Guy's Hospital as a gynecologist, and then in various capacities for the Commission for Racial Equality. And then he actually received his MBE in recognition of his service to the Independent Monitoring Board of Her Majesty's Prison Board in London. I mean, he just had a really wide-ranging career. And it's those kinds of careers that we seem to be less aware of. They're not stories, I guess, that the media are as interested in. Listen to Dan Snow's history hit. More on the Windrush, its people, and the scandal coming up. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on my podcast, not just the Tudors from History Hit, I try to make sense of everything that baffled our early modern ancestors. Like, what do you do with your waist? If you put your dunghill up against your neighbour's wall, you're going to cause rising damp. Would Henry VIII ever consider executing his wife, the Queen of England, Anne Boleyn? I'm not even sure if the Boleyns took it seriously, because why would they have any reason to suspect Henry VIII would really get rid of his queen? And why do men grow beards? During puberty, the male body heats up and a smoke rises in the body, pushes out the hair in the face. So the beard is actually a form of excrement. In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. 
And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. What's very striking to me now is that many of the doomsday uh, predictions made by people that were worried about somehow diluting the whiteness of Britain or changing that whiteness, those predictions have not come to pass. Things obviously are imperfect, but we have a society in which we have politicians of colour, we have some of our best footballers are people, we have cultural national icons who are people of colour. We have an enormous amount of mixed race marriages and relationships, particularly, I think, compared to other countries in the world. None of those more pessimistic predictions seem to have come to pass. They haven't. And in any case, they were ridiculous ideas in the first place. I mean, I think one of the things that Brits forget is that while they worry about immigration, there's been a huge amount of emigration the British have gone out and basically they've conquered the world wherever they've gone. They're in Australia, they're in New Zealand, they're in America, they're in South Africa, they're in Canada. When the British move there, they've exterminated pretty much the local people. And we've seen here that in the UK, of course, these weren't things to worry about in terms of miscegenation. At the end of the day, what people from the Caribbean had wanted when they came here was to earn enough money to look after their families. And most who came here only came here with a five-year plan anyway, because why leave the Caribbean? I mean, if the wealth hadn't been extracted from there, it's actually a really lovely place to be, as most people who go on holiday to the Caribbean will know. There are fears in Britain that still remain over the idea of Britain not remaining a white country. But I think as it currently stands, at least 80% white, if not more, there was a scandal. We can now call it the Windrush scandal. Can you talk to me about the history of that? Just briefly describe what it was is and talk to me about how it is a product of this history, of this wave of migration. So, you know, you had the 1948 Nationality Act that kind of reconfirmed the status of people within the Caribbean as British subjects. But what you then have are situations where there is within the individual colonies, and because the colonies have been treated badly, there is a movement towards independence and demands for independence. And at the point of independence, those people who are living in Britain didn't realise that then their citizenship status was at risk. Because although they were here, had come here, travelled here on British passports, the independence of their territory meant that by default they would suddenly revert to the identity of their independent 
island. So, for example, Jamaica became independent in 1962, as did Trinidad. So many of the people who were resident here in Britain at the time, their citizenship status then defaulted to being Jamaican or Trinidadian, but they didn't realise that that was the case. And I should clarify that actually slightly because it wasn't immediate because anybody who came from the Commonwealth, who was a member of the Commonwealth, also had the rights to enter and settle in Britain freely. So yes, on the one hand, you may have become Jamaican, but still you were a Commonwealth citizen and therefore you still had the right to be in Britain. And what happens is a whole series of really complex immigration laws start emerging that affect the islands in different ways so that anybody who'd arrived in Britain prior to the 1971 Act, even though they may have arrived as British, if they then didn't have a citizenship papers that said they were British, it was going to be difficult for them to prove that Britishness. And it infuriated those who knew about it. Many people didn't know about it because there wasn't any sort of widespread campaign or attempt by the British government to let the community become aware of this requirement. And in fact, most of the people who registered as British did so because they had then wanted to go on holiday with their passport. And it was at that point that they realised or they were told by immigration officers, oh, your passport isn't valid. And I've got a clip actually by somebody called Ruby. When I set about applying for a passport, age 22, and age 22, there was a problem that, oh, you're not British anymore. <laughs> and that, this was quite shocking. You can't have a British passport because you're not British anymore. You're now Grenadian because Grenada has become independent. She actually worked for a law firm at the time and they helped her regularise her status. But as I say, most of the people who did regularise their status did so by chance for the very reason that they had left the uh, country. And how did the scandal that swept people like Ruby up really erupt in recent years? I guess when we think of the Windrush scandal today, we really think of that period when Theresa May was in government in 2018, when the scandal was kind of forced onto the political agenda during the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in the UK. And the reason it sort of occurred is because whilst Theresa May was Home Secretary, she had said she was going to turn Britain into a really hostile environment. And the idea was that people who were in Britain illegally weren't going to be able to access any of the kind of in-house services, you know, whether it was the NHS, they weren't going to be able to have bank accounts. If you were stopped by the traffic police and they found out that you didn't have documentation, they would lose their car or they would lose their right to be here. And when the government brought this in, the other thing that they did was bring in an act in 2012 that took away the right to legal aid for any immigration issues. So previously in the past, if people who had been part of this Windrush generation had had issues with their citizenship, all they needed to do was get legal aid. The solicitor would go, oh, yes, we can see what's happened here. And they would then have their British status acknowledged and sorted out without any problems. However, because this act came into play, people who then had problems with their citizenship status weren't able to get the legal aid that they needed. 
the other thing she did was in 2013, she introduced these go home vans. And I don't know if you remember them. They used to go around predominantly black areas in London, the outskirts of London, warning people that if they didn't have documented proof of their citizenship, that they could be detained, denied citizenship or deported. And on top of that, not only were these vans going around, letters were being sent to individuals. So you can imagine the horror. I mean, you can imagine you're an elderly member of the Windrush generation who, say, had worked in the NHS for 50 years of your life. You're now retired and you get a letter in the post saying, we believe you're here as an undocumented migrant. And, you know, unless you can prove you're British, you're going to be subject to detention and deportation. However, what you can do is if you don't want the humiliation of that, you can choose to voluntarily repatriate. And so some people were so terrified and didn't want the shame of that, that they did actually voluntarily leave the country. But the other thing the government did was to actually bring in legislation in 2014 and 2016, again, kind of internalising Britain's border control system. So that, you know, if you wanted a job, as you know now, all of us have to prove that you're British, whether it's through your passport or whatever means. And so it meant that people who had jobs were in jobs, then lost those jobs because they then didn't have proof of their status. And just one final point I'd like to make is that the Home Office actually then expected that people should provide three or four pieces of documentary proof for every single year they'd been in Britain. So obviously, if you arrived as a (laughs) three-year-old, how were you going to amass documentation from your, you know, the period that you were in school, I mean, certainly you wouldn't have had any bills or statements or anything like that to show that you'd... It was just an impossible request. It was an absolutely impossible request. Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, has apologised for the Windrush scandal. The Home Secretary at the time, one of our Home Secretaries, Sajid Javid, has apologised as well. He was committed to righting the wrong that was done. So it caused an absolute outcry and it caused the government to completely back down. Yes, that's what it appeared at the time. There's certainly... I would say, concerns about the way that the Windrush Task Force has been managed. So we had the Wendy Williams report, and Wendy Williams made 30 recommendations that Priti Patel then went on to say would all be put in place and would be taken on board. But, you know, we've seen Suella Braverman backtrack on some of those promises. But I think the main thing that concerns me is that when Amber Rudd said that they were going to right the wrongs of the Windrush scandal, because these people were British in all but legal status, it seemed that they were all going to be given British citizenship or have their British citizenship made official. But that hasn't really been the case. I mean, if you look at the figures that are provided by the Home Office, they waver between 40 to 50 percent being issued with British citizenship, the remainder still being given indefinite leave to remain. And that's the sort of different hierarchies of citizenship. You know, if you have indefinite leave to remain, it means that your children, if you have children, that they are not then automatically British by being born in this country. It also affects if you say if you committed even a minor offence, you can be deported if you're on indefinite leave to remain. So there seems to be this weird scenario going on whereby some people who 
have applied to the scheme aren't actually being given the citizenship status that they rightfully deserve. And in fact, I think it's worth going back to the beginning in a sense, because there's a a recording I have by somebody called um, George, who came to Britain, I believe he arrived in 1959. And he points out that actually, you could kind of sense right from the beginning that the British saw British subjects from the colonies as slightly different from those within the mother country. He relates to me in this um, interview that they had a thing called police clearance and that you had to have it to come to Britain. You had a picture and a thumbprint and everything you had to put on this thing and you brought that thing with you with your passport. We had to have vaccination certificates, yellow fever, smallpox, everything you understand you had to have all that done. Typhoid, all that done. And then it was always recommended that you get a letter of reference about your character. And because I came from a family that had lots of influences and things, and we were mixed with certain people, I got mine from a doctor and a lawyer and various people, a judge wrote mine. So we, we, we had that, but they never asked us yet when we arrived here, but we told they that you must have it to come to England. Mm. Right? I think it was a way of trying to tell people, if you had, if you're misbehaved when you're younger, don't bother to go, you know, sort of thing. It was, mm. Uh, mm. That sort of thing. That's how I think now. Mm. Um, I never thought of it then. There's always been this sense that the black community have, right from the beginning, have always been seen as a potentially problematic community and that the government needs to apply what they call um, good conduct criteria in order for people to get British citizenship. But the other thing that's really bonkers is we have to remember there's 8 million Brits today white Brits who don't have passports. (laughs) So if white British people don't have to have passports, don't have citizenship paperwork, why should black Brits have to go through that process and also pay huge amounts of money for the privilege? Juanita Cox, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and answering questions and even finishing with asking a few yourself. That was fantastic. Tell us uh, where people can get hold of your oral history project, learn more about it. So if you just do a Google search for the Institute of Historical Research and put in the tag Windrush, you'll be able to find information about the project. So if anybody's interested, do look us up. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds 
of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.